Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, and I have another special guest with me today, this time fellow editor Scott Benjamin. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, For those of you who don't already know, Scott is the co-host of the Car Stuff podcast. Yeah, it's a a podcast you may have heard of, I don't know. (laughs) Just a general automotive expert, too, I'd say. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) So it goes without saying then that Scott is going to be talking with us today about an aspect of automotive history. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, you know what, this is a topic that when on the surface, you might not think it's all that interesting. You think you know everything about this guy, uh, but when you really start to dig deep into it, I mean, I think you can attest to this. It becomes, he becomes very interesting. He's a fascinating guy. And I mean, if you haven't already looked at the title, we're talking about Henry Ford. And I, I just have to point out too, I've done a few of these guest hosts now with um, Dublina on maternity leave, and most people have had a few topics they've considered. But, Scott, you were sure you wanted to talk about Henry Ford, and I can really see why now. I mean, he has a fascinating legacy, certainly. We can mm-hmm. talk all about that. But he's also just a weird guy. There's a lot of weird stuff to talk about. Yeah, we'll get to the weird stuff for sure. Um, but, you know, he, in some ways normal for you know normal in a way that you know an industrialist would be mm-hmm. if you can say that really <laughs> uh, but but then he does kind of take a left-hand turn somewhere along the he way does. <laughs> and um, we're gonna explore all aspects of that because there's some stuff that I mean even taking notes like I started to take notes and I realized that I'm getting up to like 10 12 pages of notes and I said I've just got to stop I'm gonna end up Back writing away a, from I'm end up a writing bit. writing a book about this guy if I don't maybe keep you going. could do that after <laughs> it, it seems like you know he's interesting enough to do that he really is and I think before we get too much into the positives of Ford's life and the negatives just get a few myths out of the way sure Scott did Henry Ford invent the car no did he invent the moving assembly line? No, he did not. All right. So how did he get so mixed up with those two things? Well, because his car, his quadricycle that he did build, uh, was built in 1896. And you've got to admit that that's early, early on in automotive history. Yeah. Um, that's right around the time when um, Carl Benz was putting together his car over in Germany. Uh, it's right right at the very beginning of the, the internal combustion engine and um, people with the idea that I'm going to make a, a moving vehicle instead of a steam vehicle. A horseless or, carriage. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is early, early on. It was not the first. Um, it wasn't the greatest, you know, at the time, but it became that way. And, um, you know, he didn't invent the assembly line, which he gets a lot of credit for. I think a lot of people say that, you know, thinking that that's the truth, but it was actually another uh, name that you'll recognize. His name is uh, Ransom Eli Olds. Um, so REO is REO. Oldsmobile, I'm e- presuming. Exactly, of Oldsmobile. Um, he actually had an assembly line that wasn't a, uh, an automated assembly line. Um, it was a you know manufacturing facility for vehicles, of course, but um, he put them together in mass, not quite as, as fast as Henry did because Henry incorporated uh, moving belts and um, further automation. He perfected what um, Ransom Olds had already created. And that, that, what you just said, perfecting perfecting the car, or at least making it so it's something that could be produced on a mass scale, fixed easily, yeah. uh, perfecting the assembly line, that's why we're still talking about Ford today. That's what made his name. That's what made his legacy. And we'll go into all of that more. Yeah. Um, but 
that perfection also certainly extended to other aspects of his life. And that, I think, is a little bit responsible for some of the weirder Ford yeah, stories. Very eccentric. He's a he's a perfectionist. He's kind of a tyrant sometimes. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, he's pretty famous now. I mean, this comes up a lot more now. He's well known as being anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. There are some some shady sides of uh, the story. So you said anti-Semitic. I bet a lot of people are raising their eyebrows because they had never heard of it. They had never heard of it. It's, it's, it is kind of a more recent thing you'll hear with Ford's legacy. He's not quite the folk hero that I think he must have been during his own day. True. You want to uh, like you want to start at the very beginning with this guy? Yeah, let's start. Right. How did how did he get going? How did he take these ideas that other people were thinking of but make them into something well, really he, revolutionary? You know, he was uh, he was kind of a tinkerer. You know, he uh, he started out really, you know, in a humble situation. He was a, a farm boy from Detroit. Born in the middle of the Civil War. One of those things that just is hard to wrap your mind around almost. Yeah. Born in the Civil War, died in the 1940s, such a different world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And it, you can imagine the world that he started life in mm-hmm. and then what it ended up to be, you know, in the late 40s when he when he passed away, um, how dramatically different it was. And it was because of his invention, thanks really. Thanks in part to him. Yeah, it's it's thanks in part to him, exactly. It's it's almost entirely to him, really, at the, in some ways. Um, but, yeah, he, he was born just outside of Detroit on a, on a farm, uh, spent about 15 years there, I'd say. Um, and then that's – this is weird. Like, these little key events lead to the person that Henry became. His dad gave him a, a watch. And, of course, you know, I think a lot of boys do this. They just tear it apart, find out what <laughs> made it work. But he was able to put it back together and tear it apart and put it back together. And he got to know the inner workings of the machinery, and he really liked machinery. Um, I think even locally he would, you know, work on other people's watches. He became kind of a, a local repairman is a what they said, right? Repairman. So – that aside, you know, he had this interest in, in machinery. He he, His mother died when he was relatively young. I think he was about 16 mm-hmm. when she died. And his father was kind of stunned that he was leaving the farm. And he said, well, I was only really hanging around because I, I love my mother. Mm-hmm. And his dad was shocked by this. But he did leave. He went to become an apprentice at a machine shop in Detroit. He walked to Detroit. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy. I mean, I, I understand, you know, you're just, you know, walking there with, uh, you know, Nothing, really. The clothes on your back and, mm-hmm. and saying, you know, I want to start a, a new life here. So he walks to Detroit, becomes a, uh, a machinist apprentice. Um, he also worked at a dry dock facility, uh, which is on Atwater Street in Detroit. You can still go down to this dry dock facility there. Uh, there's a brewery down there now that I've been mm-hmm. to a few times. Um, and then he eventually, you know, went back to the farm, helped out his dad, uh, but kind of got, you know, involved in the steam machines that were on the farm. Cause yeah, that was. When he took his tinkering up a notch. Yeah, this is, this is not new technology, but it's technology. And, you know, maybe it was new to his farm. Uh, but he really enjoyed the steam machines and, um, you know, decided that, you know, maybe this is something I want to want to pursue. And uh, he actually went to Westinghouse in their steam engine division and became a uh, serviceman or like a, a repairman for them. Um, so, you know, that just kind of keeps his, I don't know, this, this, uh, this, not humble beginnings, but it is in a way it's humble beginnings. He 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 was very fascinated with machinery and how things worked. Yeah, not not looking to be a, a farm boy all his life. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you you were mentioning he's he's still tinkering at home and he yep. builds this farm locomotive, which is essentially an engine attached to a, a mowing machine, kind mm-hmm. of a 
prototype tractor. And then he goes back to Detroit and he gets a different kind of job, one that you're not really, you're not expecting him to take this track. He Mm -hmm. goes to work for the Edison Company. And of course, Thomas Edison is a great hero of his, remains a hero of his throughout his life. But his new job with the Edison Company was to supervise the electrical service, you know, to make sure everything was running properly. Mm -hmm. So it meant that he was always on call. And if you're always on call, of course, you have a lot of downtime. And for Ford, he's not just whiling away his hours. He's still tinkering. He's working on new inventions. Yeah, yeah. We're talking like 1892, 93, something like that. By 1893, he was promoted to chief engineer of of, uh, the Edison Illuminating Company. I said that weird. <laughs> Edison Illuminating Company, <laughs> you know, and with Thomas Edison at the helm. And he had all this time and money, like you said, and he starts tinkering in his garage and he builds the quadricycle, oddly enough. Now, he was working, he, he was fascinated with uh, um, internal combustion engines and he made this little tiny single cylinder motor that he built on his, you know, his kitchen table. How many businesses start on your kitchen table? A lot of them do. I think this one might yeah, have. <laughs> actually, this one did, yeah. Um, so, he built this this engine. He says, well, why don't we put it in? He called it the quadricycle because it had bicycle tires. Um, he just made a really uh, crude body for this thing, but um, built it in his garage and, and finally got the thing on the road in 1896 and was just thrilled with the results. You know, he's 33 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's the chief engineer at, at this company run by Edison. Um, he went to a, I think it was a seminar, wasn't it? He went to a seminar in New York, met Thomas Edison himself, the, you know, the president of the company. And uh, Edison encouraged him to continue on with his work because he was, you know, beaming about his his latest invention. Yeah. And Edison, yeah, he said, yeah, stick with it. That's something that, you know, we need. Saw a kindred soul. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and Edison is always looking for new projects, too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyways, he... He said, stick with it. You know, that's the thing That's the thing to go for. And, and Henry actually built two or three of these prototype vehicles. Now, what I found really interesting about these prototypes of his and something, because, of course, other people were building machines like this, too, mm-hmm. at the time, he would sell them. So when he finished one, he would sell it to finance his next project, whereas the other guy might just think, I built this amazing machine. I'm going to hold on to it. Yeah. And Show everybody. Yeah, so that first quadricycle, if you can imagine what that's worth, Henry Ford's <laughs> first car, he sold it for $200 to some guy. Uh, I don't know if he lived down the road or what, but he sold it for $200, and then he built two more, and then he decided that he wanted to buy back the original. So he owns the original, and then eventually, you know, now it's on display in the Henry Ford Museum. Well, it's good he, he rescued it from yeah. obscurity there. Exactly, but you're right, it is strange for him to part with that first invention. Well, kind of a shrewd decision, though. I mean, clearly he was thinking... About the future, he about what he was going to build next. He needed some money, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but that perfectionism that we keep on mentioning, um, deciding to sell his invention to go on to build a better one, yeah. that really defines the next stage of his career. Because in 1899, he has enough interest in his work and enough backers to form the Detroit Automobile Company, which was eventually the Henry Ford Company. And... He essentially was dumped by his investors because he was still obsessed with the tinkering stage. He wasn't ready to say, all right, let's just get this car to market. No. I'm ready to go on it. He wanted to make something better. He was he was almost like, I, I want to build this by hand myself. That yeah. was his, his mentality, you know. And, you know, this this is where he paired up with a cat named uh, William, William H. Murphy. And Murphy was a wealthy investor. And they, like you said, they formed that company. You know that that company, though, was out of business six months later. And that's because of this dispute between Murphy and Ford and how things were going to be run. And it just didn't work out. And, you know, there were, 
We just talked about this recently on Car Stuff, as a matter of fact, but there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of defunct car companies, in, uh, or rather the car companies that went defunct in the, just in the United States in this time frame. So um, it wasn't unusual for somebody to start up a car company with really nothing, just more than a garage and, and an idea. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't even know if they actually produced any vehicles or not. I mean, in six months, I don't see how they could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably just the planning stage at that point. Uh, but they did, as you said, went on to per, uh, to create the Henry Ford Company. So here's a company, and again, this is what's odd to me, again, with Murphy as a backer. So he was willing to stick with him for I, a little bit longer. I don't know what happened there. Like, what <laughs> happened? They, they shut down one company after six months, and then they open up again with Henry Ford's name on the, on the marquee um, and with Murphy backing. I thought that was strange, but um, I guess, again... They butted heads, and Ford decided that the products were too expensive and just not what he wanted to produce. Um, so he dumped out of the company, took his name along with him, and Murphy, this is this is interesting, I think, Murphy renamed the company Cadillac Automobile Company. So they managed to have some staying power, too. <laughs> I think they're doing okay. Even without Ford. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're doing all right, even to today. Ford, meanwhile, went off to eventually start a second company, although at this point he had already raised capital from Detroit's wealthy citizens, Mm -hmm. and they weren't really ready to sponsor him again after the last debacle. So this time he was raising money from more just ordinary folks, Mm -hmm. and he started the Ford Motor Company. I think it was incorporated in 1903, and he didn't feel how he did anymore, you know, about let me let me tinker and tinker. I'm not ready to go to market. He mm-hmm. had a he had a product this time. He was ready to go. Yeah, yeah. And you know, just prior to that, he one of his manufacturers actually, or I'm sorry, one of his uh, uh, backers actually had his name in the in there as well. Henry changed the name in 1903 because it was originally <laughs> called Ford and Malcolmson Company. And Malcolmson, I guess, was a, a coal merchant in Detroit. He was a, a dealer of some kind, a coal dealer, which is odd. You know, that's not a profession really in Detroit anymore, but, um, so he and, and one of the other investors, this surprised the heck out of me, it was the Dodge brothers. The Dodge brothers were some of the initial investors, and we're talking about, you know, John and Horace Dodge of, you know, Dodge, well, Dodge that we see now. Dodge. Yeah, exactly. Dodge of Dodge. <laughs> um, they actually invested in the original Ford Motor Company. So, so, you know, by 1903, when it's just Ford Motor Company, that's kind of telling that, you know, Henry's starting to, you know, push his weight around a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we'll come back to the Dodge Brothers in in a minute. But with this new company in 1908, Ford launched the Model T, which he called, quote, a motor car for the great multitude. Mm -hmm. And I think most people... I mean, maybe you've even seen a Model T. You see them around every yeah. now and then. Um, but do you want to give a description? Because I'm sure, you know, maybe some of our international audiences and is familiar with the Model T. Just, I mean, it essentially looks like a black box on wheels. But what made it so remarkable at well, this time? What's remarkable was that it was affordable. That's probably the biggest thing. It's, it was the everyman's car here in the United States. Now, there's a there's a counterpart to that in uh, in Europe that we'll talk about later. But um, this was the everyman's car here in the United States. Um, it's really very very simple in design, um, and you'll find that you know if you look at a Model T, it's not it doesn't have a, a lot of um, frills to it. It's very simple, like you mentioned. Um, you said it's a box on wheels. It's true. <laughs> Mostly you'll see them in black. And there's an infamous quote, you know, from him, you know, you could have any color as long as it's black. That was made around 1914. So we're talking about six years into production. And production went from 1908 to 1927. So, you know, there's a good significant amount of time when it was only made in black from the factory. 
uh, prior to that point, you could actually get them in several different colors, which I don't think a lot of people know. You could get yeah, I didn't there's know a that. lot of different colors you could get. Um, so that was a I'm sure it was a cost saving you know, measure at that point when he decided we're just get painting. Get a lot of black paint and go. <laughs> exactly. We're painting every one of these things black. There's going to be no custom orders at this point. Um, and they sold, get this, they sold for $825 initially in 1908, which is about $22,000. So that's not terribly cheap, but it's on the low end, okay? I mean, if you're, if you're going into like today's money. Um, by the time you got around to uh, 1927, I'm sorry, by 1916, when sales were approaching like 500000 per year, mm-hmm. this became wildly popular. Prices went down all the way down to about $360. And that's only like around 7000 maybe $8,000 today. So you can see where you know this would be very, very appealing. It became an economy car. Extremely appealing for everybody. And, and it... It put the nation on wheels. And I, this is such a silly comparison, but I had to think of like, if you go to Ikea and you see a walk or something and you bought it last year and it was $8 and now it's $4 and you think, how did they do that? Yeah. The walk is exactly the same. Well, Henry Ford figured out a way to scale his production. Yeah, this is the, this is the thing about the assembly line. This is so, this is where I'm getting excited now. <laughs> this is, this is where he, he would watch the assembly lines. He would, he would have people that watched it. He would do it himself. But he would perfect and and shave corners here and there wherever he could and just make things more efficient in, in inc- tiny, tiny little incremental ways. And that brought about savings. And he did. He truly did. I mean, you can see in the pricing, he passed those savings on to his, his uh, sales base. And he knew that if he could, you know, he, if he could drop the price of the vehicle, he would sell more vehicles. He was very shrewd about this. You know, he still was making a profit. Mm-hmm. He knew that if he could increase his sales. And sometimes this is astounding when you think about it now. Sometimes his sales numbers for the Model T year over year were more than 100% increases from the year prior. Wow. Which. Because he has an untapped market. People who have. No car. Yeah, no car would never have been able to buy a car even the year before when his prices were very slightly higher. Yeah. It's now within their reach. And if you've, if you don't know anything about the Model T, um, in addition to just that it was a great, you know, get around town type vehicle or get out to the country vehicle, People would use these as as stationary motors on farms. Now we talked about the the, the steam engine that he had, you know, on the farm. That was uh, the mowing machine. Exactly yeah. the mowing machine. People would buy a Model T and they would attach um, auxiliary belts to them. They would, you know, uh, they would drive uh, sawmills. They would use them as snow plows. They would um, it, everything, anything and everything you could do with a, with a motor. Mm-hmm. They would use them to power uh, power the house. Um, it was just it was a way to get electric. It was like almost a way to get electricity. It was like a generator. Yeah. In, an, in a way. All-purpose machine. Could, <laughs> and you could drive it out to get more fuel if you needed to. It was it was an incredible machine and, and really opened a lot of people's eyes. Well, and, and you were talking about this a minute ago, saying, you know, it's this way for people to get up and go, get up and go to the country, wherever. Mm-hmm. It really did start to change how people thought about the country, how people thought about their lives. People who travel would have been far beyond their reach. Mm-hmm just a few years earlier, suddenly felt like they could go anywhere. And that, in turn, changed just the way cities were made up. It made suburbs possible. It made for huge development booms in California and Florida in the 1920s. It affected industries, oil, glass, steel. Um, You were talking about timber earlier. Um, And even changed things like agriculture. I'd never thought about it like this, but 
with so fewer horses needed with all these cars, you needed less acreage devoted to hay crops. <laughs> and imagine the sanitary conditions in a city, mm-hmm. um, how, how much more sanitary it is to have. And I know they're burning fuel. I understand that. But um, versus having a horse, uh, <laughs> you, you can understand what I'm talking yep, about. Yeah, we can get the picture yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I've heard stories of, you know, horses being just left dead in the streets in oh, Chicago or gosh. major cities. And, and it, that's the kind of conditions that, you know, he was trying to change. And he did dramatically. And and even thinking about people, um, I don't know, just your, your personal life. I've always learned about Ford in conjunction with the American teenager and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to have your beau instead of come visiting you in your parents' parlor, go out for a drive or something, just dramatically shaking up the social fabric of the United States. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, too, because some of that came to bother Henry Ford eventually. You know what else it shook up? His bank account. It did. He uh, (laughs) he became the wealthiest man. Well, you know what? I'm going to say not the wealthiest. I think Rockefeller was... The wealthiest. I believe he was number two in line, but the wealthy, the second wealthiest man in America, if not in the world at that point, um, he became part of what they call the Millionaires Club, mm-hmm. which hard to imagine, you know, this, this 15-year-old who walked to Detroit <laughs> and become an apprentice, uh, you know, is now in this Millionaires Club with his old pal Thomas Edison and Harvey Firestone. Now, Harvey Firestone is uh, of Firestone Tires, um, you know, the rubber and tire company. Um, but these guys, they were, they were pals. You know, these are the, the three absolute heads of American industry at the time. So you can imagine what it was like when the three of these guys got together. Mm-hmm. Um, crazy times, I'm sure. <laughs> they, uh, they would go hunting and fishing and, you know, they would, they worked together. They vacationed together. They had, uh, winter estates in Fort Myers together. Um, you know, they called them, uh, you know, the, the Millionaires Club because they would all, they were genuinely friends. They're kind Out. of a brain trust, too. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of an interesting, you know, turn that he's now in this uh, this extreme, extremely different lifestyle. But we should talk to you a little bit about how he gets to that real upper level, because in the middle of his growth, when his company is doing really well, the Model T is selling well, he's ready to expand hugely to, to the size that he eventually does. Mm-hmm. But some of his shareholders at the Ford Motor Company are not interested in that because it seems like it might not pay off. Mm-hmm. It seems like the shareholders might not make money initially. And so we, we said to remember the Dodge brothers. Finally, the Dodge brothers, who are two of his shareholders, took him to court over his plan to expand. They won because uh, I think the judge ruled, well, it is your job to make your shareholders some money. Um, and Ford was was furious about this, that his his idea could be manipulated by his shareholders and decided to find a way out of that, essentially, to get complete control. Yeah, so he took matters into his own hands, and he, he pretty much took control of the company. And when I say took control, I mean he really took control. He reorganized he, it. He completely reorganized it. And, you know, there's there's like a little story here that I read in Time. I think it was in Time magazine. I'm trying to remember back to something I read a long time ago. But the, the basic basic part of the story was this, that, you know, this is an employee in old time right now, and this is from the 1970s, I think. So, mm-hmm. but But back – you know, when Henry Ford was making just a pile of cash on the uh, on the Model T and it was wildly successful, he couldn't really at that point imagine, you know, varying from that. 
that design was making him money. That was that was what worked. Yeah. And you know the the refinements that were being made were nothing more than cosmetic at that no point. No 2011 really. model, no 2012, no. no designing a new car entirely. No, exactly. So Ford walks into uh, the the story is from this old timer that you know he was there. Um, Ford walks into this design studio and. The the engineers have, and I don't know how this happens, but they surprised him with a uh, with a prototype of what the new Model T should look like. I'm imagining one of the big red bows on top. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he was uh, he he kind of you know looked at the vehicle and he paced around it and he was you know kind of steaming within. You know, you could tell he wasn't happy with it. Um, so they had created they tried to perfect his design. He didn't like that. He opened one of the doors and ripped it off the hinges with his bare hands. My goodness. He got in the car. He kicked out the windshield. He, uh, he, I mean, he just destroyed every bit of that car. I mean, by hand. I mean, the rage. Can you imagine? It's almost like, you know when you hear these stories of, like, the, the mother that lifts the car off the child mm-hmm. or tears Some the door off? Some kind of off? inner strength. Exactly. It was, it was just like this. This rage, you know, drove him to this, this incredible superhuman strength, and he destroyed by hand this car that these guys had made and telling them all the time, you know, or yelling at them, screaming at them, uh, you know, why it wouldn't work and what, what was bad about this. And uh, they never, ever brought it up again. Okay, so I think at that point, some warning bells are probably going off for people. This is a clear turning point in the story, um, the story of Ford's life, tearing off the car doors. I mean, come on, that's just, it's something an unhinged person does. Symbolic, isn't it? <laughs> it is symbolic. Yeah, yeah. So that is clearly the perfect point to leave off on this first part of our episode. Um, and next time we're going to be getting into some of the stranger stuff too, but also some of the Ford nostalgia too, mm-hmm. not just the Ford control. Um, and one of our old favorite episodes is going to come up too, Fordlandia. Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. It gets a little weird after it this. It does get pretty weird. I mean, that's a good thing though. So yeah. stay tuned until then. Um, if you want to email us with some more Ford-related history, I mean, don't go too crazy because we're going to be talking about a lot more stuff next time. You can find us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we are on Facebook. And we have loads of auto articles about old cars, current cars, all sorts of things. Anything and everything. Scott edits most of it. So go check it out. All of it is on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 